Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. It's no secret that sexual predation is rampant in the entertainment industry. My guest today is here to talk about the particular brutality experienced by female comedians. Mona Shape was featured in a recent Hollywood Reporter article titled, quote, Why Me Too Hasn't Transformed the Stand-Up Scene, detailing the pervasive and constant sexual harassment and career challenges these women face. Shake is a stand-up comedian who is headlined at venues nationally and internationally. She is the host and producer of Minority Reports. In 2019, she emceed the Women's March in San Francisco, making history as the first South Asian, Middle Eastern, female comedian to perform in front of more than 60,000 people. She appears regularly at major comedy clubs in Los Angeles and has been featured in Forbes, LA Times, Newsweek, Washington Post, the BBC, and other major media outlets. Welcome, Mona. I'm very excited to be here. So I read the Hollywood Reporter article in which you were prominently featured. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to start with you giving a little bit of your background, but I'm, you know, I also looked at a lot of your stuff. You're, you're great. I love oh, your work. Thank you. And uh, the one thing that you said, I, I want you to talk about your background, but you, you, you say something which I find really interesting. You say, I didn't choose comedy. Comedy chose me. Yes. But you never explain why. So. <laughs> um. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like um, I feel like, you know, I've been doing comedy for quite a bit now or well over a decade. And um, I've seen people, do, you know, who are stand up comics and uh, other folks, uh, or especially stand up comics in, the, in, in this profession. Uh, I don't think you can really teach comedy. I think you can teach the rules of it. I think that maybe you can teach the timing, maybe. But just the way your brain is programmed and the way it's wired, I feel like comics brains are just wired very, very differently. They did a study, I think, about like two or three years ago. I think there was an article in The Guardian. Uh, I think it was Oxford who did this study. And they found out, this is a true story, that psychopaths and stand-up comedians have very similar traits. <laughs> Brain waves, brain wavelengths, like the same, like the same. And it's only like it's only a handful of things that separate us. So um, I don't know if that's a compliment or not a compliment. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, OK, so we're not out. We're not out literally killing people. We're just killing them with our jokes. You know? Yeah, yeah, I get it. I, well, it's it's interesting for a number of reasons, um, which th some were mentioned in this article. But but tell us about yourself. You have a very interesting background. You and I were both brought up in um, foreign countries. I was reared in Haiti. Oh, wow. And um, I had similar experiences at home to yours. Okay. All right. So, we should um, get into that. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about, talk about where yeah. you came. So I was uh, born and partially raised in Pakistan uh, from Karachi. I moved to New York when I was 15 years old. Actually, I moved to Jersey City, uh, to be exact, uh, when I was 15 years old. And the reason our family came to the U.S. is because I have four older brothers, and my second and my third brother were given expired vaccination for polio, and they ended up getting polio because of it. Wow. So there was no treatment for them in Pakistan. 
So my mom would write letters to hospitals around the world saying, I have two very sick kids and there's no treatment for them. And then uh, Shriners Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky was very kind. And they responded and they said, you know, if you guys just fly yourselves out, we'll pay for everything. We'll pay for the entire treatment. And that's how we started coming to the U.S. That's amazing. Yeah. So, all right. So I have such I have such deep love for America. I don't think I don't think I express it enough sometimes um, because I wouldn't be able to sit here and have this conversation with you had the generous donors at Shriners Hospital not like taken you know have compassion for our family for us to come here. So I, I have a lot of love for Shriners Hospital. Well, and the fact that you're here doing what you're doing yeah. and you're doing also something for your profession, which is you're standing up and you're speaking out about this. I, I had no idea it was so brutal. Yeah. Ladies out there. Yeah. So let's talk about your A lot of bullshit, Christina. A lot of bullshit. Let's yeah. talk. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your experience of that bullshit and we'll talk about yeah, I mean, you know, um, the the opening story uh, when you read it, it's a very well known comedian and actor, and um, this is kind of ongoing. It's interesting because when he cornered me, and he was literally trying to solicit sex on me, he was asking me if I have money, if I need money, and what kind of what kind? Yeah, he was literally asking me. He's like, "Do you have money? Do you need money?" Now like, you were at a gig. You were at a gig. You have to. That's correct. Up. That's correct. The gig and he came, minding he... my own business, minding my own business, doing my own thing. But there is this uh, danger in being in doing comedy while female that has been there for a very long time. Thank God we have more female comics that have saturated the market, market a little bit more. But the mentality hasn't changed much. Like uh, a very big comic, uh, I was standing at the Hollywood Improv here in uh, L.A. And uh, a very big comic who I've known for a number of years was uh, standing there and he said to me, hey Mona, how you doing? I've known him for a while. I'm like, hey, what's happening? And he goes, you know, he goes, well, you look very nice. I said, well, I appreciate that, thank you. He goes, you know, nowadays you can't even say to a woman, you look good because next thing you know, she's gonna me to you. And I was like, well, if your way of saying hello to a woman is by grabbing her ass or her tit, then maybe change the way you say hello to a woman. But besides that, you're fine. Just like you gave me a compliment and I said, thank you very much. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, you know, no, there isn't. But it's very interesting to me that um, in this milieu, it's almost like if it weren't exposed by you and these other women talking about it, and, and by the way, um, they talk about the risk to, you know, job, you know, your, your job opportunities right. could shrink because you are speaking out about this. I don't know, Christina. I don't know who's going to come out and blackball me. I don't know that. I don't know. I, gonna... Well, they're certainly not going to come and tell you to your face. That's for no, sure. No, they're not. Listen, I, they're not. But, you know, I'm going to eventually find out if people are pissed off at me or not. I don't know. Talk about the difference between the way sometimes women are introduced at, at a comedy club and the way men are introduced. Oh, Christina, oh, the intros are priceless. Oh, they're priceless. I did a show in Vegas, and the host and the booker of the show, I was the only woman on the show, all males. I go up second. I crush. I absolutely murder that room. It's 400 people. It's packed. 
I had a bunch of friends that came, uh, who were in Vegas to came to see the show. This host goes up on stage after I did my set and goes, I thought this bitch was a terrorist. Wow. So as a, as a what did you say? And uh, I mean, what do you say? You're off stage already. What am I gonna walk up? What am I gonna say? Walk up to him and be like, you're a fucking asshole? Like, what am I gonna say to him? What am I gonna say to him? Yeah. Right? Right? Yeah. Because then you're just like, if I cuss this guy out, then that that's another door, that's a door I just closed, right? I'm probably never gonna work in that room again because I cussed his ass out. Would he ever say that about another man of my background? I thought that guy was a terrorist, or I thought that fucker was a terrorist? He'll never say that. He'll never say that. Because he knows he'll probably get punched in the face for saying that. But with a woman, they feel much more entitled to saying horrific things. I had, um, I've heard, I mean, my personal experience and from all the stories, all the female comics that have come forward and spoken to me about this documentary, uh, some of the things are, wow, she looks so hot tonight. Her, her jeans, her ass is looking real good in that tight ass jeans. I've been, um, Russell Peters, who's a very, very big comic. He's like one of the top 10 comedians. I've been talking about him for quite some time. He uh, introduced me at the comedy store, the very first show I ever did at the comedy, I think it was the second, first or second comedy show I ever did. And he was hosting and he goes up on stage and he had, had met me the year before. And he goes up on stage, he's like, the next comic I'm about to bring up on stage, I've been trying to fuck her ever since I met her, give it up for Mona Shea. Oh my God. And he thought that was funny, huh? He thought that was funny, but listen, Jeez. there's a line, there's a line you don't cross. Yeah. Would you ever go up on stage and say that about another dude? Would you say that about a dude like you know, this guy? It's... This guy gets so much ass, I can't even tell you. Anyway, ladies, get ready because he's gonna fuck you after the show. Give it up for this guy. They're not gonna say that. Yeah, it's always it. It's always you're always sort of objectified all the time as a sexual object. That's you right. Know? Yeah. Wow. Why? I had a uh, I had an incident where uh, this uh, comic went up on stage. First of all, it was a very, very poorly ran show. They made me wait two hours before I went up. Two hours, it was just a nightmare. And then this comic goes up before me and goes, uh, you know, uh, there was a female comic that had went up before him and it was him and then me. And he goes, and this female comic was very funny and also very pretty. And he goes, he goes, wow. He goes, I didn't realize that pretty girls could be this funny. He goes, you know, because comics, you know, they're either pretty or they're funny. They ain't never close. Wow. So I get on stage and I was like, give it up for the female comic who was awesome. And I said, don't give it up for the male comic before me, you know, because he was neither pretty nor funny. How about that? <laughs> and all the women started applauding and all the men, the male comics in the back who were watching turned and looked at me and were literally ganging up on me when I got off stage and where I was in a circle surrounded by these men physically threatening me. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. It, it's definitely, it's definitely a boys club. You know, it's definitely it has been a boys club. It's a system built for men catering to men. You have a very few handful of female comics that have slipped through the cracks, who put it up with the shit, sucked it up, you know, sadly, which they shouldn't have to. And, and then, you know, they, they've been able to have the careers that they have been, right? But there's the rest of us 
and nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody thinks that it's like this hunky-dory, oh, is it, aren't comedians happy people? No! They're some of the most miserable people you'll meet on the fucking planet. They're miserable human beings, most of them. What are you talking about? Do you know how grueling it is to be a stand-up comic? Do you know what it's like to do, to wait for a three-minute set in a laundromat till midnight just so you can get up and tell jokes to people washing like their underwear. Do you understand like the grind of stand-up comedy? It's a grind. And then you add the sexual harassment and the, oh, I'm not gonna book you because you're a woman or I'm gonna tokenize you or, you know, I'm gonna sexually assault you. I'm gonna drug and rape you. I mean, the amount of women I came across that have been drugged and raped by other male comics blew my mind. What? Blew my mind. All right, wait, wait, wait. Let's 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 go to um, what happened. You had a terrible, terrible experience in 2018. You mm-hmm. had started to explain it yeah. about the, this uh, well-known guy, yes. famous guy, mm-hmm. who followed you to your car, yep. and it, it, he really scared you. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he uh, shook me. Like I was. I was, I, I'm like still traumatized. Like I can't, whenever I see his name or if I see him at a comedy club, I won't go. I won't go. Wow. And and he's never apologized for his behavior or? He doesn't think he did anything wrong. You know, that's, that's the other thing that is, I find has got to be so horrible for women who come forward. Mm-hmm. Like, the women who came forward and talked about Jeremy Piven. That's right. You know, and and what does he do? He hands them a polygraph that he had taken showing that, you know, he spoke the truth when they asked him, uh, did he, uh, was he, did, was he, you know, did he come for these women or attack them sexually? And, and his answer was no. And uh, so here, Here's the proof. And the interesting thing about his quote proof was there was no signature on the bottom. The signature of the of the polygrapher was uh, was not there. So I mean, it clearly who's the poly because he's the polygrapher. Well, he's the he's guy polygraphing he, himself. No, well, who? Yeah, exactly. But the the obviously he didn't put the guy's name down because everybody would be calling the guy to say hey is this legitimate legit or who is this guy is he a friend of a friend or what's the deal and so these women have to deal with just being kind of their experience being canceled and you and you see that that's right you see that everywhere you see what happened to the women uh when when uh, kavanaugh was being that's right uh when he was it's everywhere his hearing you know, Christina, what bothers me, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. What really, no, go ahead. What really bothers me and really gets my coat is when people are like, it's cancel, you know, the cancel culture, the cancel culture. The amount of men that have fuck up and move up is fascinating. Fuck up and move up. Fuck up and move up. Louis C.K. is back in comedy clubs. Hollywood Improv right here was blasting him all over the place that they're so proud to have him back. That's Hollywood improv business. They can do whatever they want. I'm not, we are not, no, we're not anybody to tell them how to dictate. But you're having a predator who's back out in the business, right? Doing comedy, okay? While the female comics who came forward and exposed him have no career. 
whole career. Really? They all lost their careers? Wow. Yeah, they've been blackballed. While Louis C.K. is out there doing what he's doing. You know, oftentimes people are like, how long do you punish a person? How well, long? he came, uh, he apologized. Well, oh my God, Christina, that's so touching. <laughs> Thank you. That's all I needed. Yeah. Not you pulling your ginger dick out and jerking off in front of me. I mean, I'm totally cool with that. You know, what's fascinating is that there are also- I mean, did he have to did he have to pay anything or do any? I mean, were charges filed? Did anything happen? Nothing happened. He just came out and said, you know, I made a shitty mistake and I did something shitty and I'm not very proud of it. And I didn't quite understand the power dynamic I had. Really? You're a world famous comic. You don't understand yeah, the power yeah, dynamic? Yeah. yeah, you're playing dumb now? Oh, you're dumb now. You're stupid. You don't know. Oh, I, I didn't know I had this kind of power. I didn't know that. Oh, those millions of dollars in my bank? I didn't know I had those. <laughs> exactly. So talk about talk about this documentary. You decided to do a documentary on this, right? Mm -hmm. yes. And you talked to about apparently more than 50 women. That's correct. Barely scratching the surface, Christina. All right. Over so 50 women came forward. So I started working on this documentary during the pandemic in 2020. And I came across this ex now ex co-producer. And uh, for the first three months, we were talking and I pitched him this idea that, hey, you know, it's like, sexual harassment and harassment and rape and drugging is a very big conversation that takes place in the stand-up comedy world. And we don't really have an HR or a central authority figure that we can go and talk to or a union even to go and talk to them and be like, hey, this is going on. Like this person, these these people need to be stopped, but they're out there getting booked and their their other bros are booking them up and they're saying, hey man, you're cool. You come on in, we'll book you. You're awesome, you know? Um, and while the victims, uh, are, are scared to go out, they're scared to go perform, uh, they're scared to be around the same person who drugged and raped them because nobody's gonna believe these women, right? Believe women is a real powerful thing. And now I've been working with this ex-co-producer now, and in the middle of the making this, in the middle of making this documentary, this man starts harassing me. Now the irony kills me. So I confront him and I'm like, hey man, this isn't cool. This isn't working out for me. Like, I need you to watch your mouth when you talk to me. I need you to do, have your boundaries. Long story short, it got so bad because he just kept being very verbally abusive and would put all the work on me when I would confront him by doing the work. He would have gaslight me all the time. And then the straw that broke the camel's back is that even after all this verbal abuse and this harassment, he offers to take me on an all-paid trip to Hawaii. Now, Are you kidding me? Now, With him? Yeah. With him? Yes, Christina, isn't uh, there, there are only three types of situations where a man will take you on an all paid trip. Yeah, yeah. You're married to him, you're his girlfriend, or he wants to fuck you. Yeah, fuck yeah, yeah, him, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And then turn around and be like, I didn't mean it that way. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I used to get handed plane tickets, oh. too. When I was younger, yeah, I used to I'm people used to hand me plane tickets and uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just, kindness of I mean, my heart. <laughs> you know, man. speaking oh to you about this is, is God, when, when I, when I listen to your story, I mean, I think one of the reasons why you're able to do this, frankly, 
is because a long time ago, you took care of a problem in your house, you know, mm -hmm. with your dad, and you yeah. resolved that problem. Could you talk yeah. about that? You th that presentation you did was very moving. Talk about oh, talk about you. that experience. Um, I grew up in a very violent household. My parents were very, very physically abusive, not just towards each other, but also towards me and, you know, towards some of my siblings. But a lot of brunt was basically me. I because I'm the youngest, I'm the only girl in the family. You know, girls don't 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 speak up. They don't talk. You know, they don't talk back to their parents. They just have to be nice, good little girls and put up with the shit. So my father, two two months before I moved to the U.S., I was about 15 years old. My father beat me so badly that my earrings came out of my ears. That's how badly my dad beat the shit out of me. When I moved to the U.S., I lived with my four older brothers who were my legal guardians. My oldest brother was. And my brothers would also take turns beating the absolute shit out of me. Why? Cops would arrive. My brothers, one of my brothers would call my, my mom up in Pakistan because that's where my parents lived and we lived here and tell her that she just called the cops on me. Can you tell her like to not press charges? And then my parents- You called the cops on your brothers? That was good. Yeah. That's and cool. then my, my parents would be pressuring me on the phone to not press charges, right? Enabling them to keep doing horrific behavior. So maybe somebody listening to this is like, oh my God, does Mona have an agenda here? I don't have an agenda. What I have is a problem with injustice. That's what I have a problem with, right? I don't like to go out and pick fights with people. I don't like it. I don't like fighting. I don't like it. I grew up with too much of it. I just want peace in my life. But if you bring the fight to me, then I'm gonna fight you, right? I'm not gonna cower and I'm not gonna uh, you know, run away. I'm gonna stand there and you're gonna take a few lumps from me because I'm not gonna back down. So that has been the case with my, and when my father in 2005 was visiting from Pakistan, he was here and uh, we were at a restaurant. <laughs> I was married at the time. My ex-husband was a, uh, you know, American dude. And uh, we were sitting at this Italian restaurant, me, my mom, and my brother, and my, uh, sorry, my husband, my ex-husband, me, my father, and my mom, and I ordered a glass of wine. Now, I know, like, look, if you grew up in the West, ordering a glass of wine, it's like, you order a glass of wine, you're not an adult, of course you can. In Muslim culture, in conservative Muslim household, alcohol is forbidden. Alcohol is forbidden in general. It is haram. It's yes. haram. You know about that, Christina. Yeah. I sat there and I ordered a glass of wine in front of my father. Now in the Pakistani or in the Muslim culture, that's the biggest insult to your parents. Like you're drinking alcohol in front of them. It's in many ways, it's like a middle finger to your parents, right? To their face. And my father was just like, alcohol is equivalent to piss. I was like, why? I didn't know you drank piss. And my father was just like, what did you say? I'm like, you fucking hurt me. He was like, this is haram. I was like, oh, you want to talk about haram? Let's talk about haram. I was like, beating the shit out of your wife, that's haram. Beating the shit out of your daughter, that's haram. Beating the, neglecting your children, that's haram. Being an abusive, verbally fucked up ass person, that's haram. You wanna fucking talk about haram? We can talk about haram. And my father was just like, oh, you're not gonna talk to me like that. So I'm like, shut the fuck up and sit down and you're gonna listen to everything I have to say. And I was like, I don't give a fuck what you think. You're gonna hear what I have to say. And that's, that's the end of that, okay? And, uh, and it was very interesting because a day a day after that incident, my father had a full blown meltdown. Like he couldn't he couldn't fathom the fact that 
the youngest child in the family, especially the girl. The girl. The girl came out and confronted me of all the fucked up bullshit I've done and actually got me. She got me. Like she broke me down. You know, like she had the courage to stand up and confront me. And I went and um, I was on crutches at the time. I had had a right foot surgery. I'm on crutches. I go and go visit him in uh, Jersey. That's where he was staying with my brother. And I sat there and my father cried like a child in front of me. Like, wow. he cried like for an hour, for an hour. My father was howling out of pain where he was taking tissues and stuffing it in his mouth because he didn't want me to hear his owls. And I think because my father, it's, it's, this is, you're talking about generational trauma. You're talking about my father also grew up in a very violent household. So that's the only way he knew how to t talk or even communicate to his children. Like, this is how you set the rules. This is how you set the hierarchy. I beat the shit out of you. I let you know I'm the fucking boss, okay? And if you come back to me and talk to me again, I beat the shit out of you again. This is how we set the hierarchy. And that's how it was for him. So my father had a really fucked up childhood too. So he, he just gave us what he knew. He thought, yeah, I had a fucked up childhood. This is just how you grow up. And my father, for the first time, turned into this 10-year-old boy. I couldn't recognize him. My That's father retrieved. That was huge. Yeah, he just retrieved into this 10-year-old that I had never seen before. And I'm just like, who is this guy? I've never met this guy before. And um, we had a really beautiful moment. We had an epiphany and my father apologized. And he was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I messed up. I, I pushed you guys away and I'm sorry. And I well, he, it's like you, you just broke down that that whole, as you said, that whole generation after generation after generation, the idea was that's how you keep your kids in line. You beat them. I mean, I was, I was, you know, beaten by my, my, my stepfather when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting too, because, you know, my parents were business people. They were never around. So we had a, a staff of, I'm not, you know, you, you, you know, you saw the film, The Help, right? Yes. Well, I, we had, we had like 12 servants, okay? And the, the servants who were, and I'm not gonna call them, I don't know what to call the staff, whatever, whatever the politi I don't, politically correct way. I'm just telling you, I was brought up in Haiti. And in, yeah. in my household- maids, Like housemaids and stuff. Our, our personal maids were yeah. allowed to smack us. They wow. were- Wow. Oh yeah, oh yeah. My, my maid, and my maid, her name was Lisi. She was barely five feet tall. She was a boss. I loved her. She was wonderful. She was very loving. But if you, if you screw up, I mean, I never said a dirty word until I came to America. Because wow. uh, with Lisa, you don't do that. Yeah. And she used to go outside, you know, those flamboyant trees, they have the uh, ferns and she'd take the leaf off the fern and she'd have that switch and switch. She'd come after me in the back of your legs, you know, that's where I would get it, you know. So <laughs> when and your mom was cool with that. Did your mom beat you too? Yeah. No, not my mother. My mother, she was a businesswoman. And after that, there was a lot of entertaining and stuff. Uh, you know, she, both, you know, she wasn't really, and she, she too was beaten by my stepfather. She was afraid of him too. So it took a long time before we fled to the US, you know, but what I'm interested in is how you have handled the harassment differently than I, because I learned in Haiti, like 
once once you're like 14 or 15 and a girl in Haiti, yes. you know, before that age, you have to try and distinguish yourself from the family dog. But after after a certain age, then everybody's like looking at you differently. All the men are looking at you different, even the the fathers of your friends. That's right. You know, and you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Developing the, 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 the titties and the ass, baby. Yeah, and the only thing you have a value is yeah. your virginity. I mean, in Haiti, I had friends who literally aged overnight because they they gave it up before wow. they were married, you know. And the the just do you understand that that pressure, whatever that that stigma, kind of like made them look older than they were almost overnight. So when I came here to the U.S. and I started working at the networks. Yeah. Whenever I was harassed, and I I was by you know married older producer, sure. one sure. in particular. Mm. Um, I just would ha ha ha, you know ah. Ha, ha, would he physically touch you? Would he uh, just save everything? Oh, no, he said he would uh, call me into his office and talk about how we should have an affair. You great, and this and that, and I'd just be. <laughs> you know, I just laugh it off. And at one point he got angry. I mean, I was married. I had two kids and I wasn't interested. And, and so I, uh, I was like, ha, ha, ha. I never said, you know, just leave me alone. I never right. said I was afraid because I had, I love my job and I want to. And so uh, he yeah, said like, to me, yeah, he said to me, well, this is what he said to me. And I, you know, I don't know, people can take this as they want, but they said he said to me, Well, it doesn't matter anyway, because you're not going to get very far in this company. You're not Jewish. That's wow. Wow. And I said, Oh, you know, I, I and because I come from Haiti. In Haiti, Jew, non-Jew, whatever, that's not that's not an issue. I, I don't know. I I wasn't I wasn't brought up with that dynamic. Right. I was kind of surprised. I, I didn't, you know, say anything. And then he tried to undermine me. I was working at CBS. He tried to undermine me with uh, Dan Rather. I was producing for Dan Rather. He, he, you know, it's a long story about what he did, but it was what was weird to me is that experience stuck with me up to now. Yeah. And I haven't worked at CBS for a million years. And when my immediate boss died, CBS. I went to a funeral and I saw that guy there. He didn't even recognize me. Wow. Wow. Why do you think that is? I don't know, but I just thought that's how oh. nothing. I that's it. He made me feel like nothing when he was doing that. Mm. I was, you know, I felt like that. It, it was just. And that, you know, I just feel like this fear, I mean, I wish that I had done what you did. I wish I'd said something and had had the balls to take the consequences, which could have been, well, you know, I would have seen it. Times were very different, but times were so different. Look, I feel like 
the reason that I'm able, able to come out and talk about this documentary and even have this conversation with you about it is because of the Me Too and the Time's Up that has taken place. Like, this is all these women coming together and saying, we're not going to put up with this bullshit anymore. You didn't have that in your time. In your time, you had serious repercussions. You were yeah, going to be cut off and you weren't ever going to work again. Oh, you, were, you were lucky. You were lucky to have the job. You That's were correct. lucky to have That's the correct. job. So I don't think you can it's not a fair assessment because those were completely different times. I, I mean, you, you couldn't, even with the times up in me too, I am still struggling to get the word out. I am still struggling to get the document. Right. There is still all this fear among women about repercussions and about being blackballed and all that nonsense. Right. Even with these massive movements that have taken place, I've actually emceed the women's March in San Francisco in 2019 for a crowd of 60,000 people. This girl, this girl is still thinking about those things. So in your time, forget about uh, it. Well, forget I mean, it. it's interesting how in this article, it was saying that the Me Too movement has yeah. cut both ways. Can you mm -hmm. talk about that? It's been good and bad. I mean, it's been good in general that among other industries, people are getting called out, right? I mean, look at uh, uh, Cuomo. Cuomo got taken down. Right? Because of all the shoulder rubs he was giving. Oh, that just means I'm Italian. No, you're a fucking predator. That's what you are. Don't blame it on an entire race. Just like this Jewish back coming out and saying, you're not going to climb much because you're not Jewish. Well, don't put an entire race of people because exactly. you're a fucking douchebag. You're the <laughs> douchebag. Exactly. Some, of my, some of my nicest, closest friends are Jewish men. And they're exactly. wonderful. Yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So I'm just like, don't bring your Well, Jewish the funny thing about it was um, my first marriage, I had married a Jewish guy and I had actually gone through, it, it was so traumatizing to the family, uh, that, and I have a very miscegenated family, you know, I've got, you know, Arabs, I've got Haitians, I've got, you know, all kinds of Asians, I have all kinds of people. In my, so I, when these things would happen to me, I, I was like, what? I couldn't, right. you know, it took me. And so, um, Anyway, I don't know. I just, I, I, my first, my first husband, they were traumatized by the fact that, you know, Christina. Oh. So I actually went through an Orthodox Jewish conversion. It took me two years. Okay. Because wow. I love this guy very much. Aww. And so when the guy said to me, well, you're not going to go anywhere because you're not Jewish. I said, oh, but I am actually. <laughs> you converted. You're like, I converted. <laughs> I literally converted. I mean, I just have. Did you, I, tell um, him Did you tell him you're Jewish? I said, I said, actually, I am. I said, you know, I mean, obviously, I've been cut off from my Orthodox people because I, I was, you know, trying to keep kosher and all that stuff for someone sure. who wasn't even allowed in the kitchen when I was a kid, right. you know. Yeah. Um, that was real hard, but I really appreciated. I, I actually appreciate a lot about. I appreciated the Jewish culture and religion a lot more having gone through that experience, but there's certain yeah. aspects of it, you know, fundamental, you know, fundamentalism does have its In issues. every religion. Exactly. The so, first thing they do is they comfort women. Exactly. Exactly. That's the number one thing. All religions across the board. It's not, I'm pointing that's at that, Jews. That's absolutely Islam is right. the same. The Christians, the, the, the Jews, Jews, everybody. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was, uh, he was real shocked. He was, he was quite shocked by that. But, you know, I mean, I was just someone who, uh, you know, I saw his family was in pain. And, 
you know, it didn't mean it. I didn't feel like I was losing anything, but uh, you know, by by going through the process, and it was actually, God, it was it was a very intense and interesting process. I, I, the marriage obviously didn't last because, you know, in the end, I'm not into otherness. You know, I'm just not into it. You know, right. I, I think we're all, and and you know, we're all human beings. Whatever the cultural differences are, I mean, are to be celebrated and that sort of, well, we do things like this and everybody else has to, I, I just can't live like that. My family isn't like that. You know? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, you know, and so this whole divide, the sexual thing, I mean, what's wrong with the entertainment industry? Why are they It's so not just the entertainment industry, you know, it's across the board. It's every industry. It's you're talking about global societies that have accepted for the longest time, including American society, that is that is accepted that women are worth less than men in every aspect, whether their jobs, whether their bodies. I mean, just look at what's happening right here in the United States of America, a full-blown abortion ban in Texas. In Texas, this is in America. Even I don't even know if the Taliban has even come out and said that they ban abortions. Right? <laughs> even the Taliban might be a little bit more progressive than Governor Abbott in Texas, right? And well, if, you know, I just think that if look, and I'm sorry, if Christina, you wanna if you wanna not do it, that's that's for you. You can't right. you can't be you can't be crawling up every woman's womb, you know, in the state. Or in the country. Men, honestly, Christina, men have to globally together just kind of decide if they want to fuck us or they want to fuck us over. Which is it? Because you can't have both. Well, well, actually, they have been having both, haven't they? I know they have. That's why we. That's why women like you, women like myself, me too, times up, all these incredible women, we have to cumulatively stand up and be like, this is not acceptable anymore. We don't, we don't want to live this kind of lifestyle anymore. This is not acceptable to us. It just isn't. You know, 1800s, uh, even early 1900s, you know, when in, industrialization has really mobilized for women to go and join the workforce. The reason that women got married and the whole construct of marriage was about for a woman to have financial protection and a home that she can go and live in. How do I know that? I, I mean, read the, read, read the history, but also... I come from a culture where my mom was married off at 17. I was her fifth child at the age of 23. My mother was a baby-making machine. She was yeah. like, you know, we have this cultural thing in in uh, in South Asia where we always say to the girl, well, when you belong to your home. Well, I don't, your home is your husband's home. So that means even your husband's home is not your home. You are just given off from your parents' home to your husband's home. When do you ever get to create a home for yourself? When does it ever become yours? Oh, You're that's not even conceivable. And that, that's not even conceivable. I know. And that's, why, that's why the divorce rate in Pakistan has increased exponentially. Why? Women are joining the workforce. They're putting up with less bullshit. They're putting up with less abuse. They're just like, we're not, we, I don't need to put up with this shit. I can go work and make a living. I don't need to put up with this. Now, what do you think that, that there's, you know, we're talking about the Me Too. Uh, the good thing about it is, I mean, I, in this article, it seems to indicate that the Me Too movement has allowed for the tokenization of putting like more female 
comics in the lineup, but really it's only one or two more, you know, and, and, but by the same token and people, you know, some people are reeling in their behavior, but um, the opposite side of that is a lot of men are really angry about losing what they think is their stature and yeah, power struggle. Yeah, power yeah. Struggle. Christina, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an industry built for men by men. And now women have come into the equation and are becoming major players. And men don't like it. They have right. to come and share their power. They're like, oh, I mean, just look at the comedian top fours list. How many female comics on that list? One. One. Amy Schumer, right? Nobody else, right? And listen, I'm not taking away from the other comics, the male comics that are making money, great. But this is, I want you to understand this, okay? Women biologically have, uh, you know, we have a biological clock, right? We can't have children in our 80s and 70s. A man can, we can't, right? You go up, you go through open mics or whatever, you're trying to get into clubs, you know, oh, we're, we would rather have more straight, especially white dudes, more than anybody, okay? Well, if I don't get up on stage and I don't have more stage time, how do I get better at my craft, right? It's gonna take me that much longer to get better at my craft while my biological clock is ticking, okay? So now I'm in a race against biological clock, making it to make a living as a comic, right? In the process dealing with sexual harassment, verbal abuse, not getting work because I'm a woman, uh, being asked for sexual favors, so you understand the odds that are stacked up against us wanting to just pursue a dream. Stand up is hard as enough as it is. Even if you're a straight white male, I don't care. It's hard. How many of and those then you women? add all these other bullshit elements. You're just like, well, where the fuck do I go? How many of the, you know, I, I'm still thinking about it. It's kind of puts a knot in my stomach thinking about it. How many of those women that you spoke to said they were they were drugged and raped? on the circuit over uh over five really and they they know who did it they know exactly who did it that person threatened them he told them that if you go out and you tell them and if you talk about me i have police people on the police force that will not believe you and um you know and i'm basically gonna come and murder you if you come and talk about it and they'll and my brothers will back me up some of them have actually left town permanently. They don't want to be here. Oh my God. Oh my and God. I see this person on the comedy scene all the time. Throwing peace signs. Hey, just got booked in this really big show. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's oh, yeah. so obscene. Do you think, do you think the audience um, appreciates this situation like your audience has your audience changed over time since all the me too thing or do you feel your audience appreciates the struggle that that you women are going through i think they didn't know about the struggle until this article came out really i don't think i don't think i think people just i think just like you said and i think so many people are shocked that this kind of stuff happens in the background because nobody talks about it right so many women I can't even tell you, so many women were so fearful to even come forward and talk to the writer of Hollywood Reporter to expose what's happening. Terrified. I mean, I had to have pre-calls with these women and talk to them. And they were like, Mona, I'm scared. And I'm like, I'm with you. I'm scared too. 
but I'm not going to let my fear hold me back because this needs to change. This just isn't right. We just, we just don't need to be here anymore. We don't. We don't owe anything to anything to anyone. I don't owe you my body. I don't owe you a smile. I don't owe you my niceness. I don't owe you my time. I don't owe you nothing. I, I just, owe you nothing. Yeah. I mean, basically what I owe you is a set that kills, that makes people laugh and that makes your club successful. Why can't, well, why can't those club managers, aren't they responsible for what goes on no, in the clubs? No, they're in response. The only thing they're responsible uh, for is putting butts in seats, you know, having their cool bros that they can hang with and do, you know, that they're cool with and they book and that's it. And everybody else can fuck off. Wow. Yeah, they don't wow. care. That's why, why do you think it has become such a problem? And that's why I want to make, I'm making this documentary and I'm so passionate about it because I see it all the time as someone who's experienced it multiple times, multiple times. So I was, on a, I, was on a, I was doing a Zoom show during the pandemic. I'll never forget this. I did a set, did really well. This comic goes up after me and he goes, Mona really inspired me to do my eight jokes tonight. Wow. Everybody laughed. All the men laughed. Do his rape jokes. Yeah, he said I inspired him to do his rape jokes. Yeah. Yeah. And Everybody what was laughed. the audience response to that? <laughs> Laughing my ass off. Oh, that's so funny. It's so funny. It's mostly dudes. So I went in the chat because I was no longer on screen. I was like, wow, he looks so different without his uh, white hoodie on with holes cut out in it. He looks so different. <laughs> could barely recognize him so um, this documentary what is it that you need to get it going again um my ex-co-producer needs to step aside yes, and yes. let me as the woman uh, who has brought in all these female comics and put in all this work and let me just take charge and make this documentary you know what the saddest part about this uh whole situation is that we as female comics don't have a voice to begin with unless we make it big and kind of slip through the cracks and make it big we but don't once you to. make it big, are you going to, if yeah. you use your voice, do you, yeah. do you, um, yes, jeopardize 100% platform? Of course I mean, you do. look what happened to Joe Rogan, you know, right yeah, now. Of course, I mean, of course you do. Up. Even when you make it as a woman, female comic, you are still vulnerable. You are still vulnerable on a level that a male comic would never be. Well, you're right? always, that's why they, yeah, but they all, but they feel, but a lot of the male comics, are just like, oh, when you call them out on their sexual harassment and all the fucked up shit they do, then they're like, I, I'm the victim here. It's like, oh, wait a minute. So you're gaslighting and you're playing the victim on top? What's happening here? So how can you organize these women? I mean, how many, you say you talk to 50 women, that's already a nice group. How do you, how, how can you use that group to create uh, protections for yourselves? And what? how would you go about doing it? Have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that has to happen is this documentary has to be made and people need to see firsthand what has been happening and is continuing to happen. That's number one. Awareness and bringing things from the darkness to light is number one. Number two yeah. is about holding managers, agents, bookers accountable. If you are a if you are a booker that's booking predators, you need to be shamed and called out publicly. Because what you're doing is you're saying 
it's okay to be a predator. As long as you put butts in seats, we will book you. Well, isn't that easy enough to do? You set up a website and people just contribute to it? Sure. But when you're talking about, you're talking about people coming out and claiming defamation lawsuits, getting into- Well, can't their- they be anonymous submissions? They can be- you know, it's like, it's like the, <laughs> you can make it. Yeah. Like the WikiLeaks yes. of, of uh, female comic whistleblowing. It's, it's sure. WikiLeaks. You set up, you know, it's anonymous. Yes. So you just set it up and then you, you know, some, somebody just and name the names, whatever. So it can be seen publicly, but the person who submitted it will not because because people, the women do need to know. I mean, yes. I'm sure there these comics, they go, they don't know who the predators are, who all the predators are. And we do, they, actually. We do. Oh, you do? Because, yeah, because what we do as female comics, we talk to each other. We have our private own Facebook groups. We have private chats. We're like, hey, I went and did the show. So and so was like this. Stay away. Beware. So we like have this kind of secret group that we kind of we're like the underground suffragettes of the stand-up comedy where we warn each other. Like when this incident happened with me in 2018, a week later, I was hanging out with a Persian comic girlfriend. And I started telling her about what had happened with this comic, with this, you know, well-known comedian. And she goes, Oh my God, Mona, are you kidding me? She was like, he did the same thing to me a few months ago. Wow. So he clearly has a type where like apparently some exotic creatures to him that he's just like, hmm, I have a fetish for brown girls. I wonder if one of them would bang me, you know? <laughs> and you're like, dude, I'm not an animal. I'm not a fucking animal that I'm going to just come and fuck you. Like, I don't know you. You're gross. Get away from me, you know? But we have these conversations. But you're talking about public shaming? Yeah, I'm I'm all for it. And believe me, I've thought about what you said many a times, creating that website and just exposing these predators, you know. And honestly, Christina, I want us to get to a point in at least in my lifetime where their people shouldn't even have to be anonymous. You right. shouldn't have to be anonymous, right? I mean, a lot of these male comics are like, well, we need due process. You can't just accuse people. You're right. You can't just accuse people, but when there are multiple women coming forward and claiming the same thing, there are text messages, there are, you know, all these, all, you know, there, there are messages and things. Yes. And even then when women come and share, well, that's not good enough or that's not, well, you said you want due process. I'm giving you due process. And now you're coming down and telling me that my due process isn't good enough. So which is it? Well, how, right. how do we get to win this battle? I and then I gotta come up with this shit on top of it. You guys, you guys, you need to think like, uh, you need to think, you, you need to go to a spy shop and figure out what it is you can wear or whatever so that you can capture these moments as they happen. You know, that's the problem is you can't, you don't know when they're gonna happen and they're not captured. So it's an entirely private exchange, yes. you know, where you're the victim and, and they're the predator and yep. uh, no one's uh, the wiser, you that's know? Right. And, and then you have to go through so much to even get the attention that yeah. this happened. Three, four women. I, I think about this all the time, you know, the, all these women. I mean, look at Prince Andrew. My God, there's a picture of him with his arm around this kid. <laughs> you know, 
And he walked. Listen, the royal family came and protected him. Well, yeah, he, he hasn't finished. He hasn't walked yet. He hasn't walked yet. Now, you know, that she's pursuing him very hard. And there's. I hope I hope he goes down. I hope I hope he is somebody's little bitch in prison. I fucking hope he goes to prison. <laughs> um, but I I just I'm just I guess when I when I hear these stories, oh, God, it just really. Um, I, I immediately start trying to think, what do you do? And and so why why won't he just let go and let you do this documentary by yourself? What is his argument for not letting you? His have- argument is the fact that I called him out on his harassment and taking me out to Hawaii. And he's like, I was just being nice. I was just bringing out the kindness of my heart. I was offering that. But why can't he just step aside? You know, he just doesn't say- want to because he's a he's an egotistical hurt little boy, a very angry little boy, who has to have what he wants. I want what I want. Haven't been, haven't men been getting away with that? I want what I want and you have to give it to me. I want what I want. Wow. This man, the entire making of the documentary until we've, you know, Has it been, has way. the whole thing been shot? The whole thing hasn't been shot. So he has halted the production. He won't let me go forward with it. He says, because he needs to be present on the set and I refuse to bring him on set because he has been saying fucked up inappropriate things to the female comics playing devil's advocate. And I'm like, that's not acceptable. And the fact that you've been doing this to me, the last thing I'm going to do is subject my female comics to this. Yeah, yeah. That's... You do this to me. It's another you do to my female comics. It's like re-traumatizing them while, while, they're, while they're testifying. You that's know. correct. And listen, and he's re-traumatized me too. He's re-traumatized me too, right? Tom, but I'm just like, I would rather just take the pain rather than also spread it among other comics. You because don't have any legal recourse against this guy? We do have a legal recourse. Oh, okay. Right now, we have oh. a legal recourse. Yeah, yeah, we have okay. a legal recourse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're absolutely working on that. But this person is entirely malicious. That The entire, in the making of the documentary, he kept saying how the money from the documentary, he was going to donate to women's charities and how he wanted this to be a legacy for his daughters. Where if you really want to, oh my God, he has daughters. He has daughters as well. Yes, yes. Listen, Louis C.K. has daughters. That didn't stop him. All these men have daughters. That doesn't stop him. And Prince Andrew has a daughter. That didn't stop him. You know, this this woman said this this uh, comic. um, Her name Raina Amaya. I don't I don't know her, but um, she said that. A lot of people in comedy have, she got, She said that it's not surprising that things are this way for female comedians because the whole um, atmosphere in comedy oh. is, is uh, created by, by the fact that comedy is populated by people who have rage and and uh, unprocessed trauma? Yeah, is that yeah. Tr- do you think that's true? Um, I think it's true, but it's not an excuse. Right. It's not an excuse. Just because somebody hurt me doesn't mean now I have the right to come and hurt you. No, I mean, of course it's not an excuse. I'm just saying that it makes it harder to get, it makes it harder to solve the problem because already it's, uh, 
you know, people are, are damaged goods. Is it, it yeah, I'm, I'm saying this and I don't really even know what I'm saying. I read it and I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, it says, I don't, I, it, here's the thing. Here's sadness the thing. and anger informs the craft is what is, is okay. What, I, I have a lot of sadness and I have a lot of trauma. You don't see me going around beating the shit out of guys. You don't see me right. going around, you know, telling guys to fuck off. You don't see me picking up a gun and fucking shooting up uh, and becoming a mass shooter. Or, all, or drug, drugging a man and, and... And drugging a man and stealing yeah. from him or doing... That doesn't excuse any of that behavior. My no. trauma is my trauma and my pain is my pain. I have to deal with it on my own. No, there's no... There's no excuse. Let's be yeah. real clear about that. What I'm just trying to figure out is... God, how do you how do you get to that? You know, how do you get to that and you know how you get make to it, it stop? You know, this is how you get to it. You start holding people very seriously accountable for their fucked up ass behavior. That's how you do. There are legal repercussions for your fucked up ass behavior. Chris D'Elia is a very prime example. He was uh, very big. He's a son of uh, Bill D'Elia, very big producer in Hollywood. And uh, Chris D'Elia, you know, made a very big name for himself, very big comic. He was soliciting sex from underage girls, not just one, multiple. Over 60 underage girls oh, came God. forward and said that they were... He has a full-blown federal indictment launched against him. Federal indictment. Now, is he going to get indicted? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that when that kind of stuff happens, he lost his agent, he lost his manager, like he lost a lot of stuff because of it, rightfully so. But when you look at that, you're just like, okay, these are on big scale. This is Louis C.K., Chris D'Elia, you know, uh, Bill Cosby. But what about on a more micro level? That's well, on a macro level. Cosby's back home. Of course he's back home. He's back home. Nothing happened to him. So when you when you're a male comic who's on a you know younger or in a, in a middle section of like doing comedy, like you've been doing comedy for a few years, and you see a look and look at things like that, you're just like, oh, you can do shit and just get away with it. You can just get away with it. You can just come up with an excuse. Oh, I have unresolved trauma or um, you know, uh, you know, uh, my cat bit me this morning or, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, uh, somebody shoved a dildo up my ass when I was a little kid and now I have to go around doing this to women, whatever their fucking excuse is, okay, which is un unacceptable. It's just uh, people, these comics, these predators need to be legally and financially have serious repercussions where they are to be made examples to be like, you do that shit, this is what happens to you. This is what happens to you. You know when they say, don't do the crime if you ain't got the time? Well, don't do the time, don't do the crime if you ain't got the time, because motherfucker, you are going to prison. You are going to jail. You're going to lose your entire fucking income. You're going to lose your entire fucking career. So move carefully. Watch your back, move carefully. I think that this movement is very lucky to have you, Mona because you know That's you're a nice. good voice for it I well wanna, thank you i want to thank you for coming on the show it was great having you thank you very much christina this was and a very it was a serious but a passionate and uh, really engaging conversation so thank you for asking really awesome questions